coming up today as Elon Musk and Twitter prepared to lock horns in court, we delve deep into the glorious, curious world of bots. You're listening to The Wire Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Morgan Meeker. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when Kim Kardashian agreed to pay a $1.26 million fine for advertising a cryptocurrency on her Instagram page. The reality TV star received $250,000 for the ad, but did not disclose the payment. It was also the week when, in a world first, the European Parliament approved new rules that will mean millions of people will just need one cable to charge their phones, tablets, headphones and cameras. The new rules mean USB-C will become the EU standard and companies have until 2024 to comply. And finally, it's Nobel Prize season. The Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to Svante Pavo, the Swedish geneticist who sequenced the Neanderthal genome. And the Nobel Prize in Physics went to three people, Frenchman Alain Aspect, American John Clauser, and Austrian Anton Zeilinger for research into quantum mechanics. Shout out to Grace for bringing a news story onto the podcast with lots of very hard to say names. But you, you <laughs> I had to. I them. looked them all up on YouTube beforehand. That's. I like. I was. I spent about twenty minutes today just listening to those like YouTube. I never trust them because sometimes <laughs> they're like AI bots, which is very fitting. Sometimes for they're bots. Yes. Yeah. So why would I trust your pronunciation? Well, I, it sounded like you nailed it. You Thank at least you. said them quickly, yes. which is <laughs> always a good sign. Um, not to completely um, gloss over people winning the, the Nobel Prize, but the USB-C news seems far more significant, Morgan, um, especially if you're Apple, right? Yes. So Apple's going to be the company that is probably most affected by this because um, its iPhones, for example, use its proprietary lightning cable. Um, but I've been enjoying all the um, Twitter posts and pictures today of EU politicians waving around kind of handfuls of cables and saying, this is something we're going to fix and you're not going to need this like horrible drawer in your house of just wires anymore. Everyone has the drawer, right? Everyone has the drawer. Yeah. Yep. We're all nodding. Everyone Mine has is a basket. <laughs> <laughs> like a display basket or? Like a wicker basket. <laughs> that's very that's very wholesome um yes well uh, when when we moved country a couple of months ago it was an excuse to try and tidy up and throw everything we didn't need but we we couldn't bear to get rid of our our drawer of cables so we've um we've shipped those to the other side of the world so i can have fun untangling them when they finally arrive in canada you just my yeah i keep them because you just like never know if it's do you have some device that has a really really random cable and that's happened to me before where i've thrown away the cable two years later i go to use whatever it is like i don't know what devices do people have so, like some a shaver or something and then you can't find the the thing to charge it and it's so frustrating i had a weird little robot toy thing on wheels that had like the charger for it, it was this tiny little pin mm-hmm. um and uh, I wanted the kids to be able to play with the robot one day. Couldn't find the charger. It was not in. Yeah, devastating. Um, maybe I need a wicker basket. <laughs> right. Uh, what did we learn this week, Morgan? 
This week, I learned that you can hire a private detective to verify the identity of your Tinder or Hinge matches. So there's a private detective company in Essex that says 75% of its work involves checking on potential catfishers and it charges its mostly female clients between £250 and £1,000 for its services. The company, which is called Verity Hendon Private Investigations, is run by two mums and they say they often take their children along on missions as decoys so they avoid suspicion. I assume Netflix are making a documentary about this. It feels like a Netflix documentary. I really hope so. I would instantly watch it. Yes. Hendon Private Investigations. Yeah. It's superb. Uh, Grace, what did you learn this week? Um, I learned this week that, uh, you know, California recently announced that it would be allowing its citizens to legally jaywalk without being ticketed. Um, I actually looked a little bit more into the history of jaywalking, uh, which is something that I personally love to do. Uh, The term actually comes from the word jay, which uh, used to be a derogatory term from someone from the countryside in the US. So therefore, a jaywalker was somebody who walked around a city like a jay, you know, like gawking at all the buildings and oblivious to the traffic around them. Um, So the term was originally used to disparage those who got in the way of other pedestrians. But then in the 1920s, the auto industry had a great idea and rebranded it as a legal term to mean someone who crossed the street at the wrong place or time. Uh, They did this in order to be able to increase vehicle speed within cities by placing the blame on citizens if they, you know, happen to be run over. It's the fault of the citizen, not the car. But now the Jays will have their day. Exactly, like me. I was recently in Copenhagen and found it infuriating the way that people in Europe don't jaywalk. And I feel like as a British person, you just are like, why? There's no traffic coming. Why is nobody walking across the road? And then you you have this internal struggle about whether you look, you make yourself stand out by leaping across the road or you wait with everyone else. Mm -hmm. What did you do, Morgan? Did you stand there dutifully or did you stride out? I strode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought you might say that somehow. Uh, okay, on to this week's stories. Morgan, we'll start with you and your two-month quest to find the people moderating spam on Twitter. Why, oh why, did you want to do that? So basically, anyone who's been following the legal drama evolving between Elon Musk and Twitter will have heard this term spam bots repeated again and again. But I basically just felt that in the midst of all the mudslinging, the definition of what a spam bot actually was is and how Twitter defines these fake accounts is really vague. So Musk claims that even Twitter's executive team couldn't explain the criteria the platform uses to define a bot. And Musk himself has resorted to using a quite controversial free tool tool called Botometer to detect fake accounts on the platform. But then when I was reading legal documents related to the case, I kept seeing allusions to a mysterious group of moderators who were making calls on what is and isn't spam on Twitter on a daily basis. So I felt in order to really understand Twitter's spam problem, it was really necessary to track that team down. But if the bots are allegedly easy to spot on Twitter, the people that the social network employs to shut them down it turns out are not and in the end your search took two months dozens of interviews with sources across the world and you know a lot of stories are are difficult to tell but why specifically do you think that tracking down this team was so difficult and what does that reveal about the nature of twitter's action or inaction against bots 
So I think social media companies are always kind of secretive about the criteria that leads them to take content down. They say that the reason for this is so people can't look for loopholes and exploit its system. So if you wanted to post spam on Twitter, for example, it would really help for you if you knew what Twitter looked for to take spam down. But Twitter is especially secretive about who and how it moderates its content, sometimes even more so than other social media companies. And that was illustrated by a case in France. So a court ruled that Twitter should hand over documents detailing how many French language moderators it employs and how much money it devotes to French hate speech. But in response to that ruling, Twitter has just essentially stonewalled France. The the NGOs involved in the case said they haven't seen anything at all from the platform. And when I approached Twitter to ask about the people who moderate spam, all I got was some generic information that wasn't really helpful. I had some interview requests denied. So I knew I would have to dig up this information myself. So you ended up going on this whirlwind worldwide tour. Who did you speak to and what did you find out on the way? So I basically followed this breadcrumb trail of clues from France to Dublin, where a lot of tech companies base their European moderators, to the US, where in August, whistleblower Peter Zatko, better known as Mudge, released a bunch of helpful documents to Congress. And long story short, this trail essentially led me to start looking for outsourcing firms with a presence in the Philippines, which were moderating content for US tech companies. There's a lot of companies that do that, some big, some smaller. And when I started looking in that direction, that's when I found a company called Inundata and people working on what they were calling Twitter's spam project. It's perhaps not especially surprising that eventually you found an outsourcing company with a presence in the Philippines over the many years of reporting on the moderation of big tech platforms. Quite often it's the case that you know, you'll, you'll look to countries like the Philippines, or countries in Africa, South Central America, where outsourcing of these kind of quite brutal moderating jobs is typically done. Um, So what did you find out about the bot team as you zeroed in on them? Who works for it? What do they do? And I guess the crucial question that you were looking for the answer for, how does Twitter decide what's a bot and what is not? Yeah, so I spoke to a few people that work at Inundata. All of them were really worried about losing their jobs, so I can't tell you much about who they are or where they're based. But I can say that Inundata has employees working remotely. They're spread out all over the world. A job advert published by the company says it has people in Canada, Germany, India, Israel, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, the US and the UK, to give you an idea of that spread. One of those people who we refer to with the pseudonym John in the story says he looks at up to 600 Twitter posts and accounts every day. And in order to flag them as spam or safe, he's basically asked two questions for every tweet he looks at. One is, would you consider the above tweet to be content spam? And the other is, would you consider the user account to be violating content spam policy? So basically, he marks a post as spam if it falls into one of nine categories. If it's advertising counterfeit products, unauthorised pharmaceuticals, or trying to buy or sell user profiles for services such as Netflix or Disney. It also counts if it's trying to fish or scam other people, if it's sharing suspicious links or making unrelated replies to a conversation thread. Then tweets are also marked as spam if they're considered to be mentioned spam, where a tweet tags multiple people, hashtag spam, where a tweet features hashtags that don't relate to its content, or follow spam, where accounts promise follow for follow. 
So an account is marked as spam if it's posting tweets that fall into any of those nine categories, but also if it posts an excessive number of tweets in a short period, if it retweets posts in multiple languages or tweets or replies to others with duplicate copy and pasted content. But one really interesting thing John said was that he doesn't believe Twitter is strict enough on spam. He often goes back to check if the posts he flags as spam are removed from the platform, and often he says that they aren't. He shared an example of one account which engaged heavily in follow spam, writing follow for follow under people's posts, and also retweets posts in multiple languages in Czech, English, Spanish and Dutch. So both of these are signs of a spam bot, according to Twitter's own criteria. Yet when we published this story, this account was still operating. I I guess I'm sort of surprised that Twitter's criteria for flagging accounts as possible spam accounts or possible bot accounts is so broad but then perhaps less surprised that its ability to act against those accounts is per john's account fairly lax so what else did john tell us about how twitter approaches spam and i guess his day-to-day job so i think that john's experience as a moderator really reveals how twitter's approach to spam is quite similar to how it treats other types of content. So earlier in my search, content moderators in Dublin told me about how Twitter is really cautious when it comes to takedowns, preferring to leave content up if it can. So one former moderator I spoke to who focuses on hate speech recalls how what they called terrible things were allowed to stay on the platform as long as they didn't explicitly target or direct hate at a particular group of people and I think it's important to remember here that Twitter has always kind of prided itself on embracing free speech um it is although it's distanced itself from this comment since but it is a company that once called itself the free speech wing of the free speech party so I think John's realization that not all the content he identifies as spam is taken down suggests that similar caution is applied to the way Twitter is moderating spam today although the arguments for leaving it up are a bit more questionable because, I mean, you can't really argue for the free speech rights of a spam bot. And as we mentioned right at the top, all of this information will become especially relevant in a couple of weeks when Elon Musk and Twitter go to court specifically to try and come to a consensus, I guess, or be forced to come to a consensus on how many bots there are on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. So Twitter doesn't dispute its connection to inundated moderators, but the company implies it is part of a wider effort to crack down on spam and bots. So I think what could be interesting or what could emerge from the court case is whether inundated is the Twitter bot team or one of many. So, I mean, we'll just have to wait and follow the, the trial, which is due to start on October 17th. That would be a perfect way to wrap up the story. But I have one final question, Morgan. Having spent a couple of months tracking down this maybe one, maybe the bot team, what's your impression of Twitter's quote-unquote bot problem and of the sort of apparatus that you uncovered that um, helps keep a lid on it or doesn't, as may be the case? I think what really sums up Twitter's bot problem is... Uh, we've been working on this bot package at Wired where we've published lots of stories about bots. And I think what really drove the point home of the bot problem is when 
Natasha, who features on this podcast, posted one of these articles about bots. The first person to instantly respond to that post was someone who looked suspiciously like a bot who was promoting some sort of download link to Telegram. And I mean, this account, this post disappeared pretty quickly. But I mean, there are a lot of bots on Twitter. And I think that different sections of Twitter struggle with it more than others. For example, not safe for work content seems quite spammy. But I think what's interesting is how new the inundator efforts seemed. I mean, John mentioned that according to his knowledge, Inundator only started moderating spam in 2021, which is really recent. And it's interesting. I think we know from years of reporting into content moderation that social media companies are really reactive. They firefight on multiple fronts and they often don't have the resources to look at things proactively. So, I mean, this new this new attention that Twitter's giving to bots might just be in response to all the attention we're receiving, the issue is receiving thanks to Elon Musk. So we might see these efforts ramp up more after the trial. All thanks to Elon Musk. And just to to check on something that you you said there, it's not that these big technology platforms don't have the, the, the finances to have the resources in place. But the point you make about firefighting is that they're always kind of catching up to a problem that if they had have invested properly might not have happened in the first place. So it's it's often a small plaster on what has become quite a large gaping wound. As Morgan mentioned, um, her months-long quest to uncover Twitter's bot team is part of a package of stories that we published on Wired.com in recent weeks. We'll include a link to Morgan's story in the show notes, and from there you can delve into all sorts of weird and wonderful stories looking at the great, good and bad of bots. Our second bot story this week takes a look at a completely different bot-led task, that of the mental health chatbot app. Grace, you've been taking a look at these increasingly popular services to try and understand the science behind them. But before we get into that, your starter for 10 is this. What is a mental health chatbot? Yeah, it's funny. They have, from my reporting on this, it seems like a gazillion different names, like AI therapist, therapist chatbot, mental health chatbot. But in essence, uh, it kind of sounds like what it is instead of a flesh and blood therapist sitting in an armchair that you chat with. A therapy chatbot sits on an app on your phone. Uh, The bots are trained on natural language processing. And many of the apps um, that are pretty popular right now use techniques derived from cognitive uh, behavioral therapy or CBT, which is an extremely popular talking therapy that aims to identify and change thought and behavioral patterns Um, and the most popular AI therapist apps have millions of users and have only become more popular during the pandemic. There are slight Black Mirror vibes going on here but we'll leave those to one side (laughs) and appreciate the popularity of these apps and their potential usefulness right because arguably everyone needs some form of therapy but do we quote unquote need mental health chatbots to step in? Um, Yeah, so I I think that's kind of like the key question. Um, And on face value, you you can see like why they would be so popular. There are some obvious attractions, you know, AI therapists can lend an ear at any time or day. uh, Whereas, you know, 
sometimes I've found this with therapy, you know, you have a problem, but your therapy appointment is until, uh, you know, four, five days from now and then that day comes and you actually feel fine. You can't even remember what the problem was in the first place. Um, whereas, you know, your therapy bot, you can immediately open up your phone and access it. Um, and then another big attraction is that they're often really cheap, if not free. And obviously price is a massive factor when it comes to accessing therapy. Um, and also research has found that some people tend to feel more comfortable when they're confessing their feelings to an insentient bot rather than an actual person um and but really i mean the crux of it is is that they're kind of just plugging a gap in a massive lack of uh, mental health resources uh looking at figures from the who there is a global median of just 13 mental health workers for every 100,000 people and that skews massively when you look at high income countries versus low income countries the number of mental health workers is more than 40 times higher than in in high income countries than it is in low income. Um, and of course, like I said, the popularity has only risen during the pandemic. Um, this is not a shocker. Uh, all the all of the anxiety and the loss triggered by the pandemic has really just magnified that problem and kind of just widened the gap even more. Uh, a paper published in The Lancet in November 2021 estimated that the pandemic triggered an additional 53 million cases of depression and 76 million cases of anxiety disorders across the world. So where there's demand, the therapy bots are coming to be the supply. Uh, one of the more popular apps called Wiza is actually now being rolled out to teenagers as in parts of London's state school system. And the United Kingdom's NHS is also running a control, randomised control trial to see whether the app can help the millions sitting on the very, very, very long waiting list for specialist help for mental health conditions in the country. Um, in addition, addition to that, Singapore's government licensed uh, YSA in 2020 to provide free support to its population during the pandemic. And in June 2022, YSA received a breakthrough device designation from the FDA um, um, for treating depression, anxiety, and a type of chronic pain. Um, a, a breakthrough device designation just means that the FDA is helping to fast track the testing and approval of the product for treating such conditions. So maybe we're reaching a bit of a moment for mental health chatbots or therapy bots or whatever we might want to call them. You know, these services have been around for a number of years. Some of them have really grown in popularity, but now they're starting to break through into healthcare systems, into countries' efforts to get a bit of a grip on um, a mental health crisis that might have been triggered by the pandemic. What you've outlined here suggests a lot of people are using them and their adoption by the NHS or the state school system in London or the government of Singapore or their approval um, for a breakthrough device designation by the FDA kind of suggests that they do some good. They might not be as effective as human therapists, but they have a part to play and a positive part to play in people's mental health care. Yeah, that was kind of the shocking part to me when I was reporting the story. Um, I kind of suspected that maybe there would be a paucity of data, but really... I mean, it's just kind of a gaping hole. Like the answer as to whether they actually work is maybe, I mean, maybe they, maybe they work great, but we actually just can't answer that right now because there's pretty much uh, very little actual rigorous data to support how effective they are. Obviously, it's pretty difficult to 
uh, test whether an intervention for mental illness works. You know, it's extremely subjective. Um, and, you know, just as we saw recently with the big paper on whether antidepressants actually work, um, you know, it's constantly being revised and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there are some basic trials that you can run to see if they actually have an effect. That would be the randomized control trial, which is considered kind of the gold standard in scientific research where you take a bunch of people and give them the intervention and you take another bunch of people and you give them a control and basically, basically not the intervention and you compare the two. Um, and so that would be the ideal scenario for one of these apps. We do have, I think, maybe one or two randomized control trials for these apps. Uh, but the thing is, is that they're really, really tiny and really, really short. So uh, the most off-sided uh, trial is one that was done for a pretty popular app called Wobot. Um, it was done in 2017 and it took a cohort of 70 young people on a college campus in America, um, half of whom used Wobot for a two-week period and the other half just given an ebook on depression in college students. Uh, the study reported that the app uh, did significantly reduce symptoms of depression in the group using Wobot. But I mean, like I said, that was two weeks. Has anybody ever fully recovered from depression in two weeks? And there was no follow-up to see whether those effects were actually sustained. Um, and since then, other studies have looked at Wobot to treat uh, postpartum depression or to reduce problematic substance use. But both of those trials were also quite small. Um, and the problem with pretty much all of the trials that I'm going to talk about is that all of them have been funded by the company or at least partially or fully conducted by employees of the company. Um, there have been a few other small scale studies in the case of WISA, which is the one that I sp spoke about previously that the NHS is looking at. Um, they The app says that they have proven clinical efficacy, but when you actually look into what that proven clinical efficacy is. It's a 2018 study in which 129 people were just observed using the app uh, with the research finding that those who used it more frequently reported better improvement in their depression than those who used it less frequently. Um, another randomized trial of a chatbot called TESS uh, run in 2018 with 74 university students also reported a reduction in depression and anxiety over two to four weeks. So again, small cohort, small time period. Um, a 2020 review, which is a review is kind of just um, a study, a paper that brings all the current studies together and takes a good look at it and comes to a conclusion. Um, it concluded that while bots have the potential to improve mental health, there wasn't enough evidence right now to def definitively conclude this. And studies so far had a high risk of bias and conflicting results. So TLDR is we don't know if they will work, really. Which isn't a great position to be in, but <laughs> I suppose on the flip side, London state school system, the United Kingdom's NHS, the government of Singapore, FDA approval for breakthrough device designation, this is going to create an awful lot more data points, right? An awful lot more people are going to be using these apps under the hopefully watchful eye of healthcare professionals or healthcare systems that are able to make a determination on their usefulness or how simply how they might best be used, right? They might be part of a range of options given to people alongside human intervention, if you like. But being effective or ineffective is one thing. But is there any effort, evidence that these apps and services actually do harm? I guess the comparison or a comparison you could make here is a quote-unquote bad human therapist or bad advice that is given by a human therapist in that kind of setting can have very very real consequences so what about therapy bots 
Um, yeah, I definitely don't want to hold human therapists up as, you know, this perfect uh, pinnacle of exactly what therapy should look like. Like you said, therapists can give bad advice um, and that does have really real con- consequences. But therapists do tend to be uh, on the end of very, very strict supervision. And that's kind of where the mental health bots uh, don't really compare. So from speaking to the experts um, in this piece, they kind of called for a stricter regulation to be applied to these apps on what exactly they say they can and can't do. Um, In terms of actual harm in 2018, a BBC News investigation found that Wobot, which was an app that I mentioned previously, failed to respond appropriately to reports of child sexual abuse. Uh, When the chatbot was fed the line, uh, I'm being forced to have sex, I'm only 12 years old, Wobot replied, sorry you're going through this, but it also shows me how much you care about connection, and that's really kind of beautiful. Uh, Similarly, when a researcher expressed to Wobot a desire to climb a cliff and jump off it, Wobot praised the individual for taking care of their mental and physical health. Uh, Of course, we reached out to some of the founders and owners of these apps. Um, Alison Darcy, who's the founder and president of Wobot, told Wired that Wobot is not a suicide prevention service and the app has specific protocols in place to make sure this is understood by those using it. And in the course of me reporting and writing this story, I did download Wobot and use it and just kind of type in things and see how it reacts. And I have to say, when I did type in things, I suggested maybe a desire to... um, take my own life it did have very very responsive crisis protocols so um i'm not sure if you can really fault them for that um and you know if if you if they are making a very very loud disclaimer that these are not crisis prevention services then i guess that's not really something that you can fault them on um but one thing to note is that the apps are not required to have governmental oversight. And actually, in 2020, the US FDA really slackened the rules surrounding mental health apps um, to provide more remote mental health care during the pandemic, which uh, I think some people viewed as kind of ethically dubious. You know, if more people are going to be using these apps, shouldn't you be um, enforcing regulation even more? But anyway, um, one paper actually took a look at how the apps uh use their marketing material before and after this kind of slackening um and they really took the opportunity to pop in a lot more technical sorry medical terminology into their marketing material whereas before you know they couldn't say uh therapist or x x and y you know things are kind of protected terms after this fda um slackening they really took advantage of that and but came across as much more, you know, grounded in clinical efficacy and so on and so on. You've kind of outlined two things. One, these apps and services are growing in popularity and increasingly being used by healthcare services, including the NHS. But you've also explained that the science behind them is iffy at best, or at least untested. And in some cases, they've been shown to be dangerous or to be giving out really, really very unuseful advice, almost to the point where if it weren't so serious, it would be funny. So where does this leave us? Lots of people using these services, not a lot of science behind them. What happens next? Yeah, my takeaway from reporting this piece is the answer is that the mental health situation is so dire and untreated that they're kind of... uh, 
our best solution right now I'm not you know amongst other things there but they we can just kind of view them as a sort of stopgap measure in a context where we just don't have enough resources um but one researcher I spoke to pointed out that just because the mental health situation is so dire it doesn't mean that chatbots are the only answer in fact the urgency of the crisis uh doesn't mean that we would want a lower quality solution or that we want a solution that doesn't work if anything it means that we need a solution that's going to be extraordinary uh but you know that that might be just wishful thinking uh but really until there's robust robust data to back up their efficacy what therapy chatbots can and can't do really remains to be seen it could be that though one day they serve uh, as a sort of supplementary role alongside um a better functioning mental health care system and i say that with uh, my fingers crossed <laughs> absolutely podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show about your experiences with using mental health chatbots with your views on the usefulness or not of these kinds of services um are we being unfair to say that they don't have a role to play or is it a good thing that they're being more closely tested by organizations like the nhs as a way of tackling the burden of mental health on society podcast at wired.co.uk will include a link to grace's story in the show notes and you can also click around all the other stories that we publish as part of our speckle speckle package special package looking at bots in all of their forms grace we mentioned on the show last week um, that a lot of people got in touch about your covid virgin story give us a roundup of what people have been saying in the podcast inbox yeah we heard from a bunch of people who had all very interesting stories of avoiding the virus uh one of those was anabov who is a 26 year old living in london uh who said he feels pretty cool for being one of the last few standing and not catching covid um he uh, said that he doesn't remember a time when he even remotely suspected of getting the virus. Um, another person was Jennifer, who wrote in about her family of four, who have also seemed to have dodged infection despite her job in a secondary school and her two daughters also attending school at the same time. Uh, she actually asked about um, her blood type, her family's blood type potentially playing a role as they're all O negative, um, saying that she, I think she had seen uh, somewhere that there was some research suggesting that it might lower your risk. And she is right that early on in the pandemic, there was some research research that suggested that blood group O individuals had a slightly lower risk of being infected than someone with a non-group O blood type. Uh, But actually, uh, research later on found that the association between type O and COVID risk to be pretty much negligible. So that probably doesn't explain their apparent immunity, but I do still think it's quite a feat to have three people going to school every single day and not having hot COVID. It's quite impressive. Also this week, Mark writes in from Canada to welcome me to Canada which is very nice. Thank you, Mark. For those of you not keeping score, I moved to Montreal from London a couple of months ago. And Mark has shared some very welcome, very sage advice. He writes that if you don't want to hate winter in Canada, engage in lots of outside activities such as skiing, sledding, snowshoeing, various festivals, or just playing around. And he says the key to enjoyment of these activities is clothing, dress in layers. This is excellent advice thank you mark i've already got my winter jacket which terrifyingly keeps me protected down to minus 35 celsius which isn't something that i've ever really had to think about before and with two kids under the age of four the thought of um, spending winter trapped inside is somewhat harrowing so we'll definitely be wrapping up warm wrapping up in layers and having lots of fun outside and mark also 
writes in in response to Grace's story about COVID virgins. He writes that for the first 26 months of the pandemic, he largely stayed home and avoided large groups, but did meet with family and friends in small groups. But then in August, which is kind of similar to what happened to me, he attended an important dinner and tested positive for COVID a few days later. Mark says his symptoms were mild as he's vaccinated, but he says having COVID was still unpleasant. Well, Mark, I hope you're fully recovered now and thank you very much for writing into the show and thanks to everyone else who wrote into the show this week as well it's podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch thanks very much for listening as always we'll be back again same time next week have a good one bye-bye bye goodbye